Thanks for inviting me here today. Um, today, I want to take you on a little bit of an adventure. It's a personal adventure, to be quite honest. I was going to start the talk by asking you a question, but I thought that was a little unfair so early on. So before I ask you to give me something, I'm going to give you a little bit of something um, of myself in return, a little exchange. Now, are we in mid as we are? That's great. So a little bit about me as a way of introduction. When I was in my early 20s, I used to live here. This was in Israel, and my job was in a dog yard, and it was to make cages for dogs. And after a period of time, I was able to progress up the ladder to the dog trainer. Here's me with a Rhodesian ridge back, teaching it not to eat the chicken on that occasion. <laughs> I moved then and became a full-time climber. I spent most of the time in the Alps, but then went to live in South America. And I tried to just, we were testing equipment, we were writing articles for magazines. I had a certain, I was a bit unsure about putting this in. I wondered if it looked a bit like a 1980s boy band or something. Um, <laughs> for those of you, that's me in my younger days. I moved then to Australia, and I lived in the outback, and I worked on the Flying Doctor flights, and my job was to make a piece of equipment that we could fly out into the Aboriginal settlements to work out the amount of tuberculosis in the Aboriginal populations. We used to drive around in these land cruisers with the kit, and it was an incredible adventure. And I love adventures, which is why I'm going to talk about this trip today as an adventure. I left um, Australia, and I came to UCL. I did a PhD here and I did my postdoc. And it was one day during my postdoc that I got a telephone call from a TV company. And quite simply, they said, we want you to go in search of genius. Now, I was having a bit of a bad day with the MRI scanner, so the thought of just trying to tackle genius, let alone my scanner, was at the time nearly beyond me. But there was a certain sense of adventure that I fancied in this. Um, the first thing that you need if you're going in search of genius is ideally a genius. And quite convenient, conveniently at that time, I, there was a rumor that Einstein's brain still existed. And this was a fascinating rumor to me. One of the, the early questions that came up between myself and a chap called Jim Al-Khalili that I went on this adventure with was whether genius was biological or whether it was cultural. And this is the question I want to put to you guys. I want you to imagine this scenario. It's now 1905. Einstein's in his shed at the bottom of the garden. He's worked tirelessly for three months. You know, he's expended all his energy. He's lost tons of weight. He, he does, pens those three marvelous papers. And what would have happened if he'd never published them? He'd written them all down, but he'd never published those papers. They'd never come out into the culture at that time. Now, I want you to raise your hand on whether you think he would still have been classed in your eyes as a genius if he'd done all the work, but he'd never published the papers. Then I'll ask, of course, for those that people think that genius is only when that information comes out into the culture at the time. So if you still think that Einstein would have been a genius if he'd written all the papers but never 
published them there, they'd have never come out into the public arena. Do you think he would still have been classed this remarkable genius in your eyes? Put your hands up if you think he would still have been a genius. That's probably about 50% of the audience. And if you only think he would have been a genius in your eyes if that information had come out into the culture at that time, put your hands up. It's probably slightly less. I used to be with you first guys at one time because the idea as a neuroscientist that if genius somehow is embodied within the biology, within the brain, that's a great avenue for research. If it's culturally dependent, it's a nightmare to try and analyze. However, I changed my views over the course of this program. And I'm going to show you a clip from this because it emphasized the, the endless debate between myself and Jim Al-Khalili on this topic. It also is a little gratuitous, to be quite honest. Uh, you know, it's great being a scientist sometimes. OK, so the adventure had started. But it wasn't really until I met this guy that the story starts. This is Thomas Harvey, who is a pathologist. And in 1955, the day that Einstein dies, he gets a telephone call to come down to the mortuary. He comes down, and what he sees is the dead body of Einstein. Now, at that time, in 55, everybody knew Einstein. He was globally famous even at that moment in time. Thomas Harvey thought this is going to be a remarkably special autopsy. He described to me as the Y incision in the chest. He opens up the chest. And what he found is that Einstein had this dilated aorta, a aneurysm, which burst, which was the why he died. And that time, they always opened up the head. They removed the brain, a central incision. They opened up two hearts. And then there's that moment. There's that moment when this young pathologist, probably wanting to get up the greasy pole a little bit, He's holding Einstein's brain. This is the brain that changed everything about our world. I mean, what would you do? Would you maybe take it home, put it on your mantelpiece, you know, <laughs> invite your mates around? Or would you, as you're supposed to, put it back into the head, stitch the head up, and send the body off for cremation? Well, he didn't do that. He was opportunistic. opportunistic. He took the brain, and he took it home. <laughs> Unbelievable, I know. These were the first photographs that were taken hours after he'd removed the brain. He removed the brain, and then he sliced it into 240 pieces, labeling each point, each piece, and marking that on a map that he detailed. The family went berserk, <laughs> not surprisingly. The executor of the will went berserk. The hospital went berserk. Years later, he lost his job over this. It was an incredible cross to bear, this brain. And he disappeared, and the brain disappeared with it. He was classed by many as a grave robber. And this is why I'll argue that I don't think this is the case. There were collectors, I think it was in the 90s, that were offering around about $15,000 per individual slice of Einstein's brain. And if you imagine, there was 240 pieces to start with. Each of these could be readily sliced into 100 small sections. $10,000 per one of these. It's invaluable, this brain. This brain was 
worth an unbelievable amount of money, $240 million. Yet when I met him, his last job was in a plastic molding firm. He wasn't a doctor anymore. He was virtually penniless. But he carried this brain with him continuously. The question was, which is what I posed him, where is the brain? And by the time we'd reached him, he'd actually given the brain to somewhere else, which was a bit of a trauma after spending two and a half years trying to track this guy down. But the brain had gone, and so our journey led us to this woman. This is Marion Diamond, who works in Berkeley, California. And in 1985, she received, through the post, a craft mayonnaise jar with four pieces of Einstein's brain and a letter. Dear Marion, four pieces of Einstein's brain. Could you investigate this? Thomas Harvey. She couldn't believe her look. Marion, at the time, was involved in looking at glial cells. And she'd found that if you put rats in enriched environments, there were more glial cells. And she'd developed lots of neuronal stains. And I'm, I'm sure Thomas Harvey knew about this work, which is why he sent the pieces to Marion. She sectioned up parts of the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe. And this was actually the first piece of Einstein's brain that I saw. She had one of the original sections when she did the neuronal and glial stains. And what she found was that in the left parietal cortex, an area called area 39, was that there were more glial cells in that area. Or to be more accurate, the, the glial to neural ratio was higher. It was published, and there was a lot of publicity around this. One of the things that they didn't know at that time was what that area subserved. This is some work from Elizabeth Isaacs here at UCL, and she was investigating a group of children that had normal IQ, normal verbal IQ, normal performance IQ, but the one thing they couldn't do was simple maths calculations. Sometimes they don't understand the ordinal relationship of numbers. They scanned these children, and what they found was that one part of the left parietal cortex had a lower density attached to it. It was in the same region that Einstein had this unusual neuron, glial to neuron counts. Now, this seems to underpin the, the area for, uh, for mathematics. Uh, when I've done this to kids' lectures, of course, all the kids come afterwards and they go, well, is the reason I can't do mathematics because I've got part of my brain missing? That doesn't mean you can all go back to your lectures now after this and explain that you've got part of your left parietal cortex missing. This is actually quite a rare phenomenon, but it does emphasize the relationship between um, mathematics and this area. Next, more macroscopic structure. The brain disappeared again for, for years. No one again tracked it down. Thomas Harvey moved from place to place till eventually he crossed the Canadian border and went to see a woman called Sandra Whittleson. And she got hold of the original photographs, some sections of the brain, and looked at the gross structure. And what she suggested was that in this region here again, the left parietal cortex, something was unusual structurally. This post, these grand canyons of the brain, the post-central sulcus, connects with the sylvian fissure. But this sylvian fissure normally extends through this region here. For some reason, there was a larger or greater mass in the left parietal cortex. What they concluded at the end of that paper was, quite simply, our findings do suggest that variation in specific cognitive functions, that is perhaps his genius, 
may be associated with the structure of the brain regions mediating those functions, emphasizing this relationship between structure and function. So for us, the question was, well, where was this brain? Where had it disappeared to? And Thomas Harvey had given it to this guy. To put it here, um, I'm going to very quickly flick to it. And actually, I don't need to because it's up there. I'm going to leave it here, so if you want to come down, and I'll show you the, the, the macroscopic changes on after, uh, where they are afterwards. Here you can see here, this is the, the, one of the Grand Canyons, the Sylvian Fisher, but, but this is the large parietal mass, the left parietal cortex, which was unusual in Einstein's brain, and it was compared against age and sex match controls. The question for me is this. What does this mean for us as individuals? And is there any way that we can use this information to tap into our own creativity? Now, this will be a bit of a playful look at this, to be quite honest. Uh, but I want to start with a chap called Tommy McHugh. And this was, oh my God, about six years ago now, Tommy wrote to me. Tommy had had a stroke, and he was in hospital, and he was in a coma. And he described that when he came out of the coma, he wrote a sentence. Then the next sentence rhymed with the first sentence. He started to write pages, I mean pages and pages profusely of rhyming poetry. He comes out of hospital and he starts to create murals. He's never done any artwork in his life whatsoever. And he starts to paint. He comes down in the middle of the night and hacksaws up the dining room table and starts to create sculptures out of it. It's, it's the walls, the doors, the ceilings of his flat are all completely covered with his paintings. It was as though something had bubbled up to the surface. This stroke had somehow, had somehow allowed something that was perhaps innate to come to the surface. Now, does this ring chimes with anyone else? This is work done by Bruce Miller in California, and he's interested in patients with frontotemporal dementia. These are patients that have problems in this part of the brain here. And he followed one artist, Jancy Chang. And as the dementia progressed, as the damage progressed, she was an artist, her painting changed. And her painting type changed from a very uh, representational to a very abstract form over the progression of the disease. And again, here you can see this from this very representational to this very abstract. And what they concluded from this was that the release of creativity and originality represented an unexpected and unexplored feature of dementia. It was as though something was being released by changing part of the brain. The question is, is whether this is learnt and innate or innate. This is a, a drawing of a three-year-old drawing a horse, and certainly my three-year-old will be pushed to do that. I think I might be pushed to do that at three. But Nadia wasn't. Nadia was an incredible drawer at three years of age. Is this learnt, or is this innate? It's three years old, she is. Alan Schneider believes we all have an innate ability, and we can tap into that innate ability by altering or changing the brain. And he uses a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation. You put this little um, glorified hairdryer on, and there's coils of wire throughout it. You put a current through the coil of wire, creates a magnetic field, and it knocks out or stimulates the neurons beneath that. And what he did 
was to start to play with or knock out or stimulate the air, the same area as the frontotemporal dementia patients, this frontal part of the brain. And then what he does is to get you to draw, stimulate the brain or knock it out, and then draw again to see if he can release the inner savant in all of you. Um, I'm just going to show you this. It's, I'll let you judge whether you think there's been a marked improvement before and after. Before, after. I was never overly convinced by this, <laughs> clearly, until I found this the other day, um, which was, again, an anecdotal report, and someone else had been for this uh, with Alan Schneider. Practice before, during, and after. I think they're getting better. I really, based on that, they're getting better. This is all very anecdotal stuff, but it does question whether this is innate or whether this is learned. Now, in my final three or four minutes, I'm going to try to alter, change, or adapt part of your brain in an experiment. Um, it's based on the visual cortex, which is part of the back of the brain just here. And within the visual cortex, there are different areas. Um, we've got the main vision area right at the back, V1, T, V2, color at the slightly towards the sides, V4. But the area I'm interested in is V5. So as you're watching this moving target, your vision area of the brain is being activated. And I'm going to activate it to start with by using a, an art video. It's a, a video by Tony Hill, who is, I think, one of the most exceptional video artists that I've come across. So firstly, if you get motion sickness, don't watch this, OK? Um, I'm serious. So, or if you're starting to feel a bit ill, just look away. Um, can we turn the lights down a little bit? Let's try and turn these. Can we take the lights down? Okay. Oh, great. Okay, here we go. So we're going to think about this. We're now trying to activate the motion area of the brain. So did you get that, that, that wonderfully strange feeling, right? that, that motion sickness, where you get sort of that dissociation between the, the visual system 
that's telling you your world's going round with it, but your auditory, your vestibular system is saying, you know, I'm horizontal, and it's that, you know, disconnect between the two that gives you that, that car sickness feeling. Um, so that was an active area, we're just activating the visual. The next thing, I'm going to try to get it to change, alter or adapt in a very short period of time. Now, if you suffer from epilepsy, don't watch this. If you get motion sickness, definitely don't watch this. And please don't watch this if you get epilepsy. I'll tell you when it's finished, so then you can look up again. Okay, so I've, I've warned everybody. Um, okay, at the end of the video, just a while, I'm gonna flick the lights up. I want you to look at the back of your hand. Okay, have you got that? Okay, I want you to white, watch the white dot in the center of the screen. The information is going down your eyes, down your optic nerves, specifically out to those motion areas at the back of the brain. And in time, those areas start to change. They start to adapt in only the 15 seconds that you're looking at this. I want you to keep looking at the white dots. Now, look at the back of your hands. It's stopped now. <laughs> On that point... What's remarkable is your brain can change and adapt in a very short period of time. Whether the changes in the glial cells that Marion Diamond found were just a result of the fact that Einstein did tons of mathematics, and because of that there was a reorganization in that area, or whether the work that Sandra Whittleson did to show that there was these gross macroscopic changes, areas of extra connectivity throughout the parietal cortex, bringing areas together to do with vision, perception, and spatial reasoning. Was that the way that Einstein could think so well conceptually? The one thing through all this is I've been saying to everybody is to keep an open mind. Keep an open mind. Keep an open mind. Until um, Lewis Wolpert the other day, and I put this quote, and I love Lewis from UCL, and I was banging on until he sent me this, and he said, an open mind is a very bad thing, everything falls out. <laughs> and on that note, I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Mark. I think we can all see why Mark's won all those awards for public engagement in science. Um, I'm sure there are some questions. If you do have a question, please raise your hand and wait for my colleagues with microphones to come down because this lecture is being streamed online and they won't be able to hear you on straight by you. Do we have any idea what Albert Einstein's IQ was? That's a good question. I feel as though I should know that. Um, embarrassingly, I don't know that, to be quite honest. Now, does anyone know? 169. 169, thanks. So, hi. Yeah, hi. <laughs> hi. Hi, the mine. Any more questions? There's one right down the front. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to ask, have you tried to, for example, I'm not from medicine, so maybe my question doesn't make any sense, but is it possible, for example, in rats, because you said that when they were in a very stimulating environment, they had areas of their brains with more glidal cells. Have, is it possible to artificially 
inject in some way some glidal cells, maybe some embryonic that would reassociate with their brains and see if they somehow in a rat level become smarter, to see if there is that causal relationship? So this, I mean, is, there's a lot of stem cell work going on in the brain. I don't think anyone would even start to contemplate whether you could increase someone's IQ or creativity by injecting stem cells. But the general notion is that if you've got a piece of tissue that's not functioning as well as it should be, that you could inject cells into it, those cells that then would integrate into that existing tissue and bring back the function, those studies are going on at this moment in time. But I think that's a long way from trying to, you know, make someone super intelligent. And I, I would struggle with that, to be quite honest, if that was the case. I'd love it, but I, I'll be first in the queue. But I think it was, I we're a long way from that. But the principle's right. Excellent. Gentleman here. Hello, can you please explain to me what we were supposed to see when we looked at the back of our hand and whether everybody saw the same thing? No, well, probably not. If you've got an IQ of lower than 100, it's very... Uh, um, so, I presume most people saw it now, I've said that. The, um, what you were supposed to see is that when you're looking at the areas moving, that your brain tries to effectively keep those areas still. You're trying to adapt to that movement. So that when you look at the back of your hand, it's actually not going in the same direction. It will be going effectively in an opposite direction as your brain tries to keep your world sort of stationary and normal. It's adapting very quickly to that movement. And then when you look at something that's stationary, of course, that moves as a compensation of trying to keep that illusion quite still. So it would have moved your hand. So as your question is what should have happened is that you should have seen a slight rippling throughout your hand. It would have changed the, the, the sort of visual cues related to that. So you see this bizarre rippling. Lady at the top there. Um, just about, you know, when you're talking about the dogs, the before and after. The, sure. Oh, the dog. I think meant the <laughs> dog training, I was thinking. No. <laughs> but it would have um, been a good up, yeah. You know, the, the brain bit. Um, <laughs> um, when you were talking about um, the before and after and how some people were saying it was better, surely there's a difference between the ability to copy an image and artistic creativity. Yeah, I think that's... And you huge. can't really compare I, the two. So when you say something's better... What are you referring to? Like the three-year-old clearly copied that horse really, really well. But to somebody else's opinion, it may not have been as artistic as, say, the other three-year-olds, yeah. for example. So this, I think this is emphasized by Tommy's case, is that he has this profound desire to create. And he endlessly paints. But because he's got no background and skills in that, it's very difficult for him to do perhaps what he wants to. He needs to have those background skills. The other, the other extreme of that, of course, is these people that have got a, a, a small amount of background skills that it seems to enable them to do something that's slightly better. But it's, whether it improves their creativity, I think it's a long way from that. I think there was a study, and I'm, I'm right in saying this, that in terms of learning languages, and I think we're sure we're all aware of this, that the notion of disinhibition 
uh, being a little bit more relaxed enables us to get a, a bit more out of ourselves. So when you've had about two and a half glasses of wine, that's when you're best at speaking a, a second language. It's that very narrow window of opportunity that we all know about. <laughs> After that, it's just we think we're really good at speaking a second language. I think there's a question. Just Mike, there's one down here and there's one at the back over there. Um, it was just referring to, um, I think it was Adam Snyder, his research yeah. with the dogs. Um, only five out of 17 volunteers um, had um, got better at drawing the dog. But what about the other volunteers? Were a disadvantage? Were there side effects to the hairdryer thing that he did? Yeah. <laughs> That's right, they all limped out. Um, they, so presumably they didn't get better. Um, in his defence, he's published this, but not with the drawing. Um, it was in terms of, if I remember right, numerosity. So he hasn't, as far as I'm aware, published the, the drawing study, and I think he maybe, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know. But he has got some other data, and there's several studies being published showing that TMS can improve certain cognitive functions, memory, for example, cert certain uh, motor tasks as well. I think Alan's been struggling to get good numbers on this, and it tends to be anecdotally at this level, the drawing. And creativity, I don't think anyone's published any stories related to that. They're purely related to individual tasks. But people are getting better performance following TMS. There's a question over here. Um, is there a link between this discussion and neuroplasticity? Say this, sorry? Is there a link between this discussion and neuroplasticity? Um, so the, the obvious link is, or the two, the two really early obvious ones, is that if you, um, there's two studies that look at sort of microscopic structural changes on brain imaging, a technique called voxel-based morphometry. And there was one study when they took taxi drivers and studied their brains, ones that hadn't learned the knowledge, and then taxi drivers that had learnt the knowledge, maybe it takes them two years to acquire all the street names in London, and you compare the brains. And the taxi drivers that had learnt all the street names had larger, were large, had larger parts of their hippocampus in certain regions. So presumably all that storage, all those memories, had caused some degree of neural plasticity and an increase that, that area in size. And there was another study with jugglers when they started to get people juggling. And within about six weeks, eight weeks, they'd already started to see the structural changes in the brain associated with the sensory motor cortex of learning this new tasks. So already, yes, we can see reorganization in the brain, and you can see it quite early on. And there's been some um, animal reports, preclinical reports, experimental reports, showing that after only five days of learning a task, these were mice that had to swim around a tank and they have to learn where the platform is. Only five days of doing that, they were able to see hippocampal changes, so, which is a very short period of time. And one report that's about to be published um, has shown that only after two hours of learning, you can start to see white matter changes, structural changes in the brain. So reorganization that's ha happening incredibly quickly in the same way that you can change and adapt to that illusion that we saw Last of all. So I think, and to, to bring that back to Einstein, I don't think you can reorganize big cortical folds. That's something that happens very early on in development. 
But the, the neuronal glial issue, I'm sure that that can be changed by um, you know, doing a task repeatedly. So the reorganization around that. Whether that was the case, Lord alone knows. We've got one at the back and then one over here. Hi. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it seems like you started to answer my question a bit from the neuroplasticity section. But I guess I'm trying to understand. So have there been clear imaging comparisons between, say, artists and scientists? As in, I know I'm sort of being a bit um, flippant describing artists and scientists, but people who perhaps... Yeah, the artists have a very small brain compared to the scientists. <laughs> because, uh, I'm the I... scientist. So, um, but have there been any sort of classic differences in pathology um, that have been seen or documented? And if not, is it more about kind of task learning that perhaps leads to the reorganisation? So basically scientists trying their best to keep doing artistic tasks, or do you think it is the formal stimuli around that perhaps mm. will help that reorganization. I guess I'm trying to understand, is it stimuli or perhaps trying to do the task, the new task that might lead to changes? So can I do, can I do the art and science thing? Because I quite like, you know, Sandra Whittleson did some very early studies looking at males and females and the difference in white matter and corpus callosum. And of course, that's in, always incredibly controversial. Um, I'm not aware of brain studies that sort of compare artists and scientists. Although Simon Baron-Cohen has published some preliminary studies showing that scientists on average are more systematic than artists. And artists on average are more empathic than scientists. And the question is was whether you believe those are innate predispositions that we have, that you're born with those traits very, very early on which then allow you to go into particular disciplines, and probably via the educational system, that we're not all born a blank slate. You have certain regions that we know about. Certain people have predispositions for certain traits. Maybe scientists are more systematic by definition. You've got those areas. You come in contact with an educational system that might push you down one direction. You get lots of reorganization. You help the systematic qualities. And maybe the art and science divide happens very early on. I guess the question for us educationally and culturally is if we're not all born a blank slate, then what do we do? We have to recognize that's the case, that people have certain predispositions. And then we say, well, maybe we've got to start filling in those gaps because the systemizing traits, they'll probably do very well at those, just put in the right environment, they'll love it. But maybe their empathic or maybe their artistic or creative side needs to be encouraged because they don't naturally lean towards that. And creating a more rounded person actually does us better in the long run. And I think that's probably where the arts and sciences, where we can learn from if there is a divide, which I think there is, and Simon Baron Cohen's work, I think we can bring the two together. You can reorganize, but also an acknowledgement that there are differences. I think we've got time for one question, if both the question and the answer are short, but it's over here. Thank you. Um, I was curious, in returning to the CIDA study, uh, whether the cap that he placed on his subjects induced the negative symptoms of uh, dementia, uh, in addition to the unexpected uh, artistic release that we saw. So, sorry, the, so this is you're referring to the frontotemporal dementia patients, is that yes. right? And whether that, whether it, there were just specific things related to their artistic creativity, whether there were other effects? Uh, no, it's Snyder's subjects, so oh, Schneider's, whether yeah. putting on this inhibitory cap yeah. uh, induced the dementia, sim the symptoms of dementia. 
I'm not, I'm not aware of that. But then there are, it's not just as simple as just stimulating or knocking out. I, and I'm not aware that anyone's tried to reproduce pathological symptoms with it. I think Alan's always trying to gear the, the way of using the device very subtly to try to get what, probably what he described as some kind of disinhibition that allows something to come to the surface that is there that maybe is held back in the same way that Tommy, when Tommy had that stroke, something that was released, as he described it, something that bubbled to the surface that he already had there. And I think that's what Alan's looking for. I'm really sorry to bring us to a close. I can see there are more questions, but we do have to finish there. So I'd just like to thank you all for coming. Thank you all for your questions, but also thank you to Mark. Thank you, guys. Thanks very much.